Scientists estimate that there are about 9 million species living on Earth. A figure hard to contemplate, even harder when you consider that we, mankind, are only one of those species. In general, we know so little about the creatures who share our planet with us. 75% of species have yet to be described, catalogued or even discovered. We may love the incredible beauty and diversity of our planet, but it is a fragile beauty. We are losing species at an extinction rate of 1% per year. This means that in the next 30 years, more than 30% of all animals will become extinct. This is the story of a couple, Anne and Brian Clark, who dedicated their retirement to set up the Frozen Ark, an insurance against future loss. But before we go into the why or how the couple did this, consider first whether we really should be concerned with extinction. Is it not something that our planet has always faced as part of our evolutionary cycle? In her role as Registrar, Research and Conservation Coordinator in Dublin Zoo, Sandra Malloy is acutely aware of the risks we face. Extinction is a normal process and animals do go extinct and do evolve. However, current rates of extinction are about 100 times greater than what you would normally expect. This rate of extinction is expected to rise to maybe a thousand times greater than the normal process. Many scientists would call this the sixth mass extinction event. And there's been five previous one and the one that most people would recognise is when the dinosaurs went extinct. And the rate of loss at the moment is comparable to that time. But why is this happening now? Uh, human beings are the problem. We, our population is growing very fast. We use up a lot of resources, especially fresh water. Freshwater fish are maybe one of the most endangered groups of animals at the moment because fresh water is either being drained, dammed, polluted, and it makes it very hard for animals to live in this environment. Also, land is going. You have big problems in, in a lot of uh, countries between large animals and people. We, we've seen it here in Europe where wolves and bears were exterminated. In Asia, there's lots of problems between Asian elephants and people. So there's a lot of conflict over land and resources. On top of this, we have climate change. Um, so this is changing the temperature and in the water also affects the salinity. The change is happening too fast for some species to evolve. Some, some species will evolve and they'll be okay, but a great number of others won't be able to evolve. And there is also kind of incidents of introducing animals where they should not be and then they compete with native fauna and native flora and it just upsets the ecosystem. So each one on their own isn't devastating, but the fact that there's so much going on at the one time, it's a major blow for, for wildlife. We know about some of the animals we have lost so far. And if you visit a museum, you can see what used to live on our planet. The Natural History Museum in Dublin has a collection of over two million scientific specimens. Nigel Monaghan is the keeper of this museum. I joined Nigel at the museum to journey back in time and walk among the Victorian mahogany cabinets home now to the animals of the past. Here you can stand beside the skeletons of the great Irish deer and walk under the carcasses of a basking shark suspended from the vaulted ceiling. Well, we can go and look at a dodo. There's an archetype of extinction for you. We're 
We're standing in front of the dodo skeleton in the Natural History Museum in Dublin, and this is one of about 20 in the world. Our dodo skeleton is one of a number based on bundles of bones sold at auction in the 1860s. The bones were all excavated and may not have belonged to the same individuals. A schoolteacher on the island of Mauritius went looking for dodo remains, wanted to excavate them, assumed he'd find them in the bogs and there'd be lots and lots of them. But eventually he did manage to find some and he managed to produce a few parcels of bones that were sent to England and put up for auction. And what we know about dodos in terms of hard scientific fact is actually quite skimpy. Travellers' tales of dodos, sketches and illustrations of dodos have all been looked at. The famous image of a dodo comes from illustrations that accompanied Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass. And that was a fat, squat, dumpy dodo. That was a caricature. The bird beside it, nobody has heard of except a handful of scientists. It's called a solitaire. It's from another island near Mauritius, where dodos come from. Uh, The island is Rodriguez. But the Rodriguez solitaire is one of the rarest fossil birds in the world. This is one of 15. They're even rarer than dodos, but they didn't have anybody writing about them in 19th century England and putting them into popular children's books. Another bird here in the case is the Labrador duck. And we don't even know if these ducks ever saw Labrador. It was assumed to be their natural habitat and nesting place. There are now about 50 in museums around the world. Um, they were only discovered as they were going extinct, and they were discovered in markets in New York City where people were eating them, and they were just the unusual ducks. And that was a source of unusual animals for scientists to go out into the markets and see what the hunters were all bringing home. So if they're going out with big guns and shooting a flock of ducks in an afternoon. There might well be unusual and rare species within that group. And sometimes that's all we know. So we know that it was shot, it was in a market. That's where most of them have come from. Nobody knows where they nested. Uh, Nobody knows very much about their ecology. But that part of the world around New York City and to the north would have been changing very rapidly with a huge increase in population and a very rapid collapse of wetlands, big increases in pollution affecting the food chain along the coastal zone. And it's probably not the only extinct duck, but it's the one that actually got seen. Our fascination with and desire to study and collect the natural world can be traced back to the origin of man. Indeed, once our ancestors gave up their nomadic lifestyles about 12,000 years ago and settled down in one location, we began to collect. Our collections become our legacy for future generations. Victorians were particularly obsessive in their desire to collect and their legacy include the wonders of the Dublin Natural History Museum. I work in a natural history museum known by Dublin locals as the Dead Zoo because it's full of taxidermy rather than live animals. And it was built in the 1850s and filled out over the next 50 years. So by the 1910s, it was already full. And the aim was to get one of everything. So it's a great place to come and see one of everything that the Victorian world knew about at the time. And we have a number of extinct birds which people have probably never heard about. Um, Some of the animals in this building are one of only six, say, in the world. We have a a merganser, a type of duck from New Zealand that is the only Auckland Island merganser in the country. There are only five others in existence. By the time people went back to look for them again, they died out. So museums can be a great reservoir of extinct animals where we've already failed. And in most of the cases, 
it was our fault. We can go back to the Ice Age where we can argue that it wasn't particularly the fault of human beings. The number of animals died out. A lot of that was about climate change. We live in a world where evolution is steadily apace. We wouldn't be here if all of our ancestral organisms right back to primordial slime hadn't been there in the first place. Some of those are still with us. Others have died out through natural processes. But we're facing into the big extinction that is very much under our control and potentially we're losing the battle there. What we have collected, the skeletons, fragments of bones and fossils, enable us to imagine the world that was. The museum here is famous for its giant Irish deer, a kind of deer called Megaloceros that roamed during Ice Age times. The Irish ones are mostly 11,000 years old. Standing underneath a giant deer as you are here, you realise how big an animal it is. I mean, even if you were standing toe-to-toe, you couldn't reach up and pat it on the back. And if you're looking for something comparable in a zoo, you're looking for a teenage elephant. And add to that up to 40 kilos of bone in two huge antlers on either side of the head. And those antlers were not only enormous and used in battle, and impressive. They were also shed every single year. So the animals had to be able to put on 40 kilos or thereabouts of solid bone in a single year. And in Ireland, we have some fragments of bones from caves that show that we had giant deer here around 30,000 years ago. This display case has a tusk of a woolly mammoth. What this kind of material has been able to teach us so far is that we know we had the woolly mammoth species living in Ireland. We have bones that are from very young animals, so we know that they were actually breeding here because some of these big animals would migrate and might have only been here outside the breeding cycle. But we know that woolly mammoths were being born in County Cork 33,000 years ago because we have radiocarbon dates from this material that allows us to pin that down. And with woolly mammoth, you've got frozen material to go to that's got much better standards of recovery of DNA in long strings, but you're still a long way away from where you'd be if you were sampling a fresh blood sample. But yes, sort of, you know, Ice Age mammals, we know enough to know that we've missed out, you know. Past collections have shown us what we have lost. Dublin's Dead Zoo collection of taxidermy bones and skeletons lets us see what animals used to live on our Earth. And scientists can extract some information from this, but it is limited. So what are we collecting now? How are we preserving the information about the animals that are going extinct in our lifetime? What if we use modern DNA technology to preserve the entire genetic makeup of the animals that are threatened with extinction? This is exactly what husband and wife Brian and Anne Clark set out to achieve with the frozen ark. Brian was the founding professor of genetics at the University of Nottingham. In 2010, he won the Darwin Medal Award from the Royal Society for his contribution to understanding the genetic basis of evolution. He died in March 2014, at the age of 81. Dr Anne Clark is an honorary university senior research fellow at the University of Nottingham. She continues as managing trustee of the Frozen Ark, a registered charity supported by and based in the University of Nottingham. My husband, Brian, well, he is really responsible for the whole concept. We couldn't remember 
who actually came up with the words the frozen ark first. That's what we'll call it. But I think it was absolutely instantaneous on the landing one day <laughs> at home. And we got a third co-founder. Now, she's interesting. Um, she was killed in a car crash aged 80 about six years ago called Anne McLaren. I was lucky enough to have her as a PhD supervisor in Edinburgh. Whenever I had any scientific problems, I used to take them to her. So when Brian and I came up with Frozen Ark, I went to Anne, as usual, and said, we've had this idea, what do you think, what should we do? And she delved about amongst her papers, and she threw a paper to me across the table. This was in 2000, of a paper she'd written with some Americans one from San Diego Zoo, Oliver Ryder, saying that somebody should start preserving the DNA of endangered species before it goes extinct. So she became a co-founder of the Frozen Ark. <laughs> the concept of the Frozen Ark is simple. It's necessity obvious. As this letter to Anne from a child explains to us. Dear Dr Clark, my name is Numi and I am eight. My class read an article about your Frozen Ark project. First of all, I think your idea is fantastic, though I'm kind of scared in case it goes wrong. I think it could work, but it is possible that in the future you may be able to bring back animals which have died out completely like the dodo bird. I think it is good because it means that my children will be able to see all the animals that I can see now in real life and not just in pictures. The origin of the idea of the Frozen Ark lies in the academic work that Brian and Anne Clark dedicated their lives to. The beginning um, starts with land snails from French Polynesia. Brian, who was the Foundation Professor of Genetics here in Nottingham, was very interested in the polymorphisms of snails. We're all polymorphic for eye colour or hair colour. It means the different types within one species. And the snails, one of the polymorphic snails, which has different colours and different stripes, is the was the parchula that lived in the valleys of Polynesian islands. And the one we studied in them particularly was Tahiti and Maria. Scientifically, they're interesting because... The valleys are so low and the mountains are so high that snails can't actually get over the top, which means they get isolated in their valleys and they speciate. And you study, you can study speciation in the snails and it's just like how it works in humans um, and how polymorphism works in humans. Why do we have, some people have green eyes and some blue? Why isn't there a best colour? Ditto hair colour. I mean, there's lots of potential things, like you have darker skin colour when you're most exposed to the sun. But all this genetic variation we have is terribly important. Why? How? How has it passed? So there's certain advantages of being different to everyone else in various respects, and this goes all the way through the animal kingdom. Anyway, this study of speciation, which had lots of relevance for humans, he was carrying out with an American colleague called Jim Murray. So we went and we studied all the snails in all the valleys, and I, I'm not a population geneticist. By trade, I'm a reproductive immunologist, but I used to go on all these expeditions because I like, I like going, and I was quite a good snail collector. <laughs> So I used to go, and then we took the children when they grew up a bit. 
I was with Anne in Brian's old office, a small room, its floor-to-ceiling bookshelves crammed with old leather-bound books, research notebooks and beautiful old maps. Maps of location. That's where our parts were found. It's my husband's stuff. Mm. Field notebooks. Every sample. What happened to it? The original maps made in the field, probably. This is a very detailed map um, of a tiny portion of Tahiti. We sampled in all these mountains. It's very mountainous country. These are maps of the Parchula, exactly where they were collected, and we have a sample of that from 1960 onwards. A bag of tricks. This is Parchula. As the Clarks were studying the Parchula back in the 60s, unexpectedly, they also became a witness to the extinction of the species. Um, so that's how the arc really started, because then the study of speciation turned into a study of extinction. So they went back and they plotted March of the extinction, so we watched as they all went extinct. So we brought back these snails in lunchboxes on the boat, on um, paper hankies with a bit of water and porridge oats. And we gave them to London Zoo. We also froze them because uh, they wanted to look at the evolutionary biology and the DNA and the sequences and see how they really differed each of the different variants. And then one day we looked at each other and we said, is anybody doing this for any other endangered species? And we started looking it up and they weren't. So we were landed. We set ourselves the task of collecting um, all the species which are listed on the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, IUCN's Red Data List of Endangered Species. That's a name, but that keeps changing. Many institutions around the world already store animal tissue and viable cells, but not always in a manner that allows the preservation of undamaged DNA, and seldom in coordination with other similar institutions. Few are aimed exclusively at endangered species, and none is saving invertebrates, on which so many larger animals, including mankind, depend. The frozen arc is different, and it seeks to coordinate the work of 22 of the world's foremost research and conservation bodies, zoos, including Dublin Zoo, natural history museums and research labs. Collectively, they conserve the genetic resource of the world's endangered species. Each consortium member, under strict guidelines, is responsible for collecting and storing their own samples. Anne brought me to the Frozen Ark's own collection, held in the Nottingham University lab. So this is where the minus 80 Samples are collected. Store them in small boxes. We've got samples here from um, an expedition to Vietnam that's just taken place. Um, lots from Twi Cross Zoo, and we are specialising in in Nottingham particularly 
in keeping the invertebrate samples, snails and insects. Often when we consider the issue of extinction, we think of iconic animals, like the snow leopard. However, it is the extinction of invertebrates, animals without backbones, which is our greatest threat. Invertebrates constitute 95% of all animal species on Earth and perform vital roles in all ecological systems. Despite their importance, invertebrate species are disappearing at an alarming rate, as Sandra Malloy explains. The thing with invertebrates, there are just so many. If you go into the rainforest, I think they say you shake a tree and you'll probably discover several hundred new species. There's so much out there. But invertebrates and plants, it's the smaller things that I think that we take for granted are actually the building blocks of wildlife. Without them, wildlife can't survive. If humans were to disappear tomorrow from the planet, the planet would go on. But if invertebrates were to disappear tomorrow from the planet, our entire system of what we depend on would just fall apart. Like invertebrates are needed to keep water clean, to aerate our soils for nutrient recycling. So we wouldn't be able to grow food. We wouldn't be able to have clean drinking water. These are essential elements for what we need to, to live and survive without invertebrates. They are one of the most important groups of animals. Um, and not to mention different types of fungi and plants, again, many of which have not been classified and we don't even understand their role yet. Well, we've only named about 25 to 30% of animal species on planet Earth. We don't know any more than that. Now, most of these are small. Most of these are invertebrates. We have no idea if we cause the extinction of most of the plants and the animals and are left with our agricultural species, where we're heading. And most scientists would say we're heading into the abyss ourselves. So this isn't just a moral thing that we should look after other species because they're beautiful, because life will be amazingly dreary for the future generations if it's just our agricultural plants and animals. So the ideal job would be that every creature on Earth, they don't even know how many animals there are on Earth, but they were all safely stored away, and it wouldn't take up much space. Someone's worked out that you could actually store genetically represented samples of each species. They could all be stored in about the size of a medium-sized house. This is not a hypothetical issue. It is real. To see a small sample of the endangered animals we risk losing, I took a walk with zookeeper Susan O'Brien. But these guys now, these are um, the Asiatic lions. That's the big male there, Kumar. He's a beaut. Um, you'll know him. He's got the big, huge mane. And then we've two females then as well. One of the females was just calling there to him to go over. So there's about 300 of these guys left in the wild and about the same again in zoos. So they're doing, they're doing pretty bad. They're classed as endangered. Whereas the Sumatran tigers are the same same numbers, about 300 in zoos, about 300 in the wild, but they're critically endangered. So the, the way they affect the status is on their geographic distribution as well because the Sumatran tigers are just found in this one little small area. They're at a lot more um, risk if something hits Sumatra, if there's an earthquake or that could have a devastating effect. So that's why they're critically endangered. This is the um, Sumatran tiger habitat here. So we have a male and a female. That's Seeger there, that's the female, just there. Again, these guys are beautiful. These are one of the most endangered carnivores in the world. They're the smallest of the subspecies of the big cats or the tigers. 
and you can always tell a Sumatran tiger they've got kind of double bars for their stripes and these guys are fantastic swimmers they actually have webbed feet and it's great you can see we've an enrichment set up here you can see the bit of meat hanging up in the tree can you see it just here so we have a, bit, a nice bit of leg of horse there and um, basically we, we encourage them to climb and you know to, to move their bodies and, and, and kind of stay as active as possible this is all kind of modern husbandry we're not just serving it up on a little metal dish because it's boring and they're not working for it and this way you're making them really kind of work those muscles and you know work, work a bit for their food We support the Snow Leopard Trust. There's one up there you can see her in the grass. Fantastic camouflage. That lovely big fur coat, that's one of the reasons they're so endangered as well. The people are using the pelts for um, the fur because they're so beautiful. And then there's a lot of trouble with the local landowners as well because a lot of the farmers think that they're predating on their livestock. I think with any kind of conservation organisation, you really have to get the kind of locals involved. Um, female just there as well. She's beautiful. They really are exquisite, exquisite animal. You can see the uh, attraction, unfortunately, with the coats. But they look a lot better on the leopard, I think, than on anybody. You can see the massive, big, long tail there as well. And they use this for... Um, it kind of keeps them warm. They wrap it right the way around their body, like, and cover up their nose and everything to keep heat in. But they also use it, like, these guys, when they're hunting out in the wild, they're on, like, sheer cliff faces nearly. And they use this big tail, like a, a rudder almost, to kind of help them to, uh, to balance as well. Absolutely incredible animals. And then obviously the orangutans are another one that are um, endangered as well. Major factor is palm oil in, in the wild. So again, it's this human encroachment and farming. And they're just doing this kind of slash and burn. They'll come in, basically cut down acres and acres of forest. And they plant this palm oil, which you can find in absolutely everything. And again, these guys are just getting, there's just no room. There's not enough room for them and, and people. And Saibu here is the dominant male. So you can see he's got the big, huge, prominent cheek flaps there. That's a lot of the, the big males have these cheeks. He's about 30 now, so he's a grand age for an orang, and then he has this kind of harem of females here as well. So you can see a few up high there in the trees swinging, but they're fantastic climbers now as well. It's great to see them moving. I think orangutan means man of the forest. That's pretty cool. We're just coming up now to the red pandas. They're often called the firefox as well. And these guys now are in, in trouble because habitat loss is everything. It always goes back to habitat loss. And these guys, they're quite arboreal, so they'd be in trees quite a lot. They would have kind of nest holes where they'd have their young and the young would stay kind of safe. So if the forest is cut down, it takes X number of years for it to grow back and for these kind of nest holes to become, you know, available. So they're very, very reliant on, you know, well-established forest areas. In China now, they're, it's becoming like a status symbol for them to get a present of the tail for a wedding gift. Their coats are so beautiful. Their coats are always in, in demand then as well. Yeah, it's a shame. They are stunning-looking animals. Susan is keeper of the Golden Lion Tarman one of the smallest primates in the world, named after its beautiful mane of golden hair that frames its face. This endangered monkey has seen all but 2% of its natural environment destroyed. They're only found in um, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, so they're endemic to this area. There's um, two species of primates, the, the woody monkey and the golden line tarmac. So the only place in the whole wide world is Rio de Janeiro where you'll find these guys. The main problem was habitat destruction. The, the wild population of uh, golden line tarmacs, they dropped to about 200 animals. They were going to go extinct. Because they're kind of a forest um, dwelling animal, I think only about 2% of their original forest is left, so they don't really know exactly what they, they would have um, kind of lived in. 
you'll notice they have a very high-pitched call, so it's nearly like a whistle. And again, the high-pitched call, it travels a lot better over far distances because the forest is so dense. Uh, they need to have this constant calling and they're, they're checking in with each other the whole time. And they'd have different kind of alarm calls then for, you know, if there's a bird of prey maybe flying over or if there's a snake on the ground. So they're constantly um, in touch with each other. These guys actually are good. The Walder Bivis, again, one of the most critically endangered birds in the world. These guys are only found in two places, in Syria and Morocco. They get shot quite a lot. The only reason there's any kind of stronghold left is that they were revered as a bird for fertility. So that's why there was a few remaining, literally a couple of hundred birds left. So we're doing quite well. We've bred these guys very well at the moment. A lot of these birds are carrion feeders, so you'd think like the vulture or like the storks they'd be kind of bald head and the reason for this is that they're sticking their head inside animal carcasses and they're not getting all blood and guts and everything stuck to the, their feathers so that's why they have this kind of baldy head because there's an area they can't clean their plumage is beautiful it's real kind of iridescent they've got that lovely greeny sheen purpley sheen off them as well they're as important I think as the Sumatran tigers they deserve their, their niche in the world as well but no we're doing, doing good with these guys the idea that we can simply solve the problem of extinction by breeding the extinct animals in captivity is not as straightforward as you might consider, as Dublin Zoo's vet, John Banbridge, explains. In the real live world, you cannot breed from every tiger that exists in zoos because you then end up with nowhere for the offspring to go to. So you have to regulate the breeding so that you end up with a mixture of genetic material of all the tigers, say you're dealing with the Amur tigers from Russia and Siberia. They're very rare animals, and their environment has been threatened and they're hunted. Now we have Amurs, but the females that we have are well represented in live animals. Their genetic material is well, well represented. We have a male that at the moment is a young male, um, and we hope to breed from him in the future. So we can't uh, sterilise him because he still has the breathing potential. So what we have to do is to use a contraceptive for the females. Breeding is important, but you must control it. You can't breed willy-nilly. A stud book keeper in Europe will say, Dublin Zoo, we'd like you to breed these tigers. And we breed them. The most important tool in scientifically managing ex situ population of wild animals is the stud book. Here, all data relevant to the captive population of a certain species is collected and continuously updated. A stud book contains the registration number of each animal of that particular species in captivity and includes information such as its sex and birth date, the identity of its parents and where it was born. It is a record of its genetic footprint. So I'm a stud bookkeeper, for example, for uh, the Geldies monkey here. So this particular species of monkey, there's about 400 of them in Europe, and I'm responsible for the population. So I manage that population of a fancy computer system. I can put all the details in. It tells me exactly who's who, who's related to who. And it's basically like still a black on saying, OK, I want you to mate with this female over here, and you can make recommendations. So most of the species here are part of this breeding programme as well. We can just see like the, the demographics of the population then as well. And, you know, do we have enough youngsters coming in to replace older animals that are naturally kind of dying off or as well we can say okay we can plan ahead say for example there's 200 golden line tamarins in the European population I can work it out in 50 years time okay you're going to have 500 golden line tamarins unless you slow down breeding now again you might want to increase breeding there's all these different factors you have to kind of take into account as well 
you can understand that we can't just address the issue of extinction by simply breeding more animals. Breeding is complex, and it is only one element of a conservation programme, in which, as Anne Clark explains, zoos do play a vital role. Conservation of animals and plants has become and is becoming an accepted necessity, and the zoos are very conscious that they are vehicles of conservation, that they're not just displays for the benefit of human beings who want to look at animals, they are actually serving a conservation function. Dublin Zoo is a consortium member of the Frozen Ark, a position they value highly. You and I and many of us are used to going to um, museums and zoos and we see in museums, we see animals that used to be. In a zoo uh, we are now able to do certain things we can breed animals, but only really a small proportion of the species that um, exist on the planet. And the whole structure of Dublin Zoo is to be progressive, to uh, look to their responsibilities in, in keeping the animals well, number one, but also to look at their the responsibilities of, uh, if possible, conserving species. So too then when somebody comes in from a, a wider field and says, will you be part of something that will preserve uh, DNA into the future. So in the future, we will be able to say, say for instance, we have um, our silverback at the moment is Harry. Um, but all the time, new diseases are being uh, identified. And in a hundred years' time, if something else comes along, they'll be able to look at the stored material and say, yes, Harry did have that a hundred years ago. So it's not a new disease. Harry had it. It's going into a freezer, you don't see it, but it can live again. Dublin Zoo has their own frozen art collection. But how does it work? How do you collect the DNA from an endangered animal in a zoo? We found that the um, amount of work we actually have to do is not extensive. One important aspect of it is that we don't uh, traumatise the animals. To take samples, they are done opportunistically. So, for instance, we have tigers here and I will dart them with an anaesthetic at least once a year, some of them, because I have to uh, give them uh, a contraceptive. We then have the anaesthetised animals and I'll go about my work. We'll be doing a general examination, I'll be checking for lameness. Uh, I know one of them has a bad pelvis, uh, so I'll be checking and we might be doing an x-ray. So on that occasion we do that and then we simply take more blood for the frozen arc. So that's all we do. Take a sample is easy, and then we have to ensure that it can be retrieved, maybe 100 years hence, 200 years hence, um, from the container if and when it's needed. The other Frozen R Consortium member is the University College Dublin. Professor Emma Teeling manages the backup storage of the Irish DNA collection. I met with Professor Teeling in her labs in UCD. Brian Clark contacted me, would have been about May 2010, to see would I be interested in the idea of providing freezer space, essentially, for Dublin Zoo. And he introduced me to the idea and the concept of the Frozen Ark. Now, I had already been aware of this initiative and thought, you know, this is a great idea. I phoned him, would be on the 17th of June. And the reason why I know that is because I gave birth to my second child on 18th of June. And I decided that it was, I was so very busy trying to get every, everything ready before I was going to go on maternity leave, I thought the easiest thing to do was to phone him up. So I rang him up 
and started having long conversations. It suddenly dawned on me, you know, really who Brian Clark actually was as a genius, really inspirational scientist and geneticist. And here I had the cheek to phone him up. And he was very lovely and he chatted to me and we talked all about the Frozen Ark. And he was coming over to Dublin Zoo and had wanted to meet me. And it was six weeks later. And he, he wanted to know, could I meet him? And I had to explain to him, well, my baby's due tomorrow. Um, I will try and make it, but I can't guarantee anything. And then six weeks later, I brought my six-week-old son into the zoo and met with Brian Clark. And he was everything I imagined he would be. Very inspirational, a total genius. And he talked to me about the pros and cons of, you know, why were we going to do it? So the question is, you know, what's the point of cataloguing all of whole genomes, which is the DNA? The blueprint of what makes you who you are is maintained in every one of your cells. It's called your DNA. A full description of the entire building blocks, the steps that need to be taken to make that individual, make that species. That's what you're looking at. The blueprint, your book of life, essentially. What we can do with this blueprint, if we start thinking in the future of these technologies that are going to come along, is then be able to take that and turn it into a living cell line of some kind. If you could make egg and sperm, you could make a, an individual. So Brian was already thinking of how could you actually do this. Could you take these frozen tissues? Would you be able to grow cell lines? And the other idea was I know that some of scientists in China, I believe, are trying to, to take the full genome of a mammoth put it potentially into clone this genome, put it into a female elephant and again grow a baby. Or perhaps we'll, we'll have something much more interesting such as cloning. Take the DNA out of a living cell, put in the DNA of another animal into that and grow the full animal. Ventner has already taken a genome from a different species, put it into the appropriate cell to grow it from another species and, you know, people said, oh, he's like God, he's created life. He hasn't created life. He's made a copy of a genome that already works and put it into a cell and been able to replicate it that way. So we're moving things forward. The frozen material is there for future scientists to create something new. The possibilities are yet to be fully imagined. But we are also freezing the DNA for the knowledge held within. We are creating a frozen knowledge bank of the world's species. I would say what we're primarily doing right now, given our current technology, is having a data bank of the knowledge of the blueprint of each one of these animals. Without the blueprint, you can't do anything. With the view that once we have that preserved and maintained, we can then use it to our advantage to increase diversity, for example, to understand how different environments change in molded genomes, to do comparative genomics. Again, this is what I work on, trying to find regions of the genome that might change in response to climate change, for example. Regions of the genome that allow a bat to fly. What do they have that other taxa don't have? Regions of the genome that might, might convey some type of resistance to disease. If we lose, and we are, these animals are going extinct, these species are going extinct. If we lose that, we're never ever going to get it back, ever again. So this is the idea of the frozen is to keep a catalogue of these genomes, of the blueprint that makes up life as we see it right now. And I guess the Clarks focused on animals that are going extinct because these are the ones that we really are, so they're in the most jeopardy. The Something that we need to save. Brian had considered the pros and cons of the frozen arc, 
But what are the downsides? Well, I mean, you think of the cons. The cons of where you're going to put a the environment has changed so drastically that you can't actually maintain the biodiversity we have right now. How do you know that we're going to be ever able to... So say you could bring him back. Is there any point? Say you could bring back mammoths. Is there any point? Where are you going to put them? Where are they going to survive? What are you going to do? Has the ecosystem changed so much that they can't actually exist in it? That would be a con. And again, people will argue, well, why are you spending all this time and effort saving the genomes? Why don't you save the environment that these organisms live in? Isn't that a better way? Isn't that a, a better way to protect species, protect the habitat? Well, I think these things need to go hand in hand. Of course, you need to protect the habitat. That's important. But at least with saving these genomes, you know, you could save the entire world probably in a house, as Anne Clark would say, a house full of minus 80 freezers, a catalogue of the genome of everything that's alive today in this planet, potentially, depending how much DNA you're taking. So I think you need to do both, and that would have been one of his cons. It is incredible to think that such a tiny sample of blood or tissue can hold so much information and possibilities. So what is involved in collecting and storing the DNA? What we do right now and what they do for the frozen arc is essentially take a piece of tissue and you'd remove it in as uh, uh, depends on the environment, you're out in the field, you do everything in, in as sterile a condition as you can. If you take a much bigger piece of skin versus a much smaller piece of skin, you're going to have more cells in the bigger piece. In every one of your cells, you're going to have your full complement of DNA, which is your genome. If you can take more cells, you'll have more DNA. You take a piece of tissue, put it into a tiny tube, as you would see here. Hold on, let me get my gloves on. You want to try and make sure that your DNA isn't everywhere. Think about every time you touch something, your DNA is on there. And that way you take your tiny piece of tissue, you would put it in here. The vets would take some of the little bit of muscle that they may have after an operation on some of these animals when they're doing routine veterinary procedures, put a little bit of tissue into the tube like this and immediately freeze this tube. It's the tube and the tissue that gets frozen. And this maintains the integrity of the DNA. The frozen arc would be a complement of, of working with the zoos, but also working with a bunch of wildlife biologists who are working with these animals in the wild. It's all well and good doing it when you're in the zoo, but that means that you have to have those, those endangered animals in a zoo. But if you want to go and take samples from the wild, that you actually need to go out and catch them and preserve, take a little tiny bit of tissue, not wipe them out. The problem with working with extinct or endangered species are things that are critical, is that if you want to sample them to get their DNA, to look at their, whole, their, their full complement of DNA, you're going to have to make sure it's non-lethal. So the sampling you can't kill them. Because typically you take a little bit of liver or a bit of brain or something where maybe it would be a better type of tissue. But when you can't do that, what do you have to work with? And so you can. this is now when you have to work with little bits of wing punches or a small amount of blood or a bit of an ear clipping or, or a, a finger clipping or what else I use? Swabs. Buccal swabs or mouth or sometimes all you can work with is their dropping. The quality will depend on how you freeze it. So the quantity is one thing, and then the quality is the next thing. If you take it from a living organism and immediately flash freeze it, and so you immediately stick it into liquid nitrogen. So think of some of those ideas where you see scientists taking a rose, putting it into liquid nitrogen, taking it back out again and dropping it, and it chatters like a piece of glass. So that essentially it stops all your biological processes, it slows them down. And for long-term preservation, that's why you have to keep them really, really cold. What is in Ireland's Frozen Art collection housed in UCD? 
We're taking you over into the side where in this loud noise that you hear here, these are all our minus 80 freezers. Again, they have to maintain cold and kept cold. Here's my freezer here. Open it up. And you can see here, in all these frozen levels, and then these different tubes. So in here, blood, tissue, and so forth. And as you can see, they're each, they're in these racks. And in these racks here, and here, and here, and here, this is where we keep the frozen arc samples. So again, it's just like a big drawer in a freezer. You make sure that you know where everything is. Typically, there are, most of these are mammals. So there's primates, so there's monkeys, there are orangutans, there's whatever the zoo brings us, we put in there. And close this again. It needs to be kept good and tight. You want to make sure that it's all closed. We've got to keep this cold. And that's one thing. And all our freezers are linked to alarms so that if the temperature increases too much, if it isn't maintained cold where it's supposed to be, I get a phone call. And I get a phone call from bang, bang, bing. This is a Chagas warning announcement. Your freezer is at the wrong temperature. And we have to send somebody in to try and sort it out. This is a frozen knowledge bank of our animal kingdom. Jude Smith is the frozen ark administrator and she looks after the database of the DNA samples from all 22 consortium members. She talked me through the range of samples being stored in the frozen ark. So this is, this is some of the data that we've, we've already got put on. So here, we've, for example, we've got the gorilla called Biddy, a cotton-top tamarind, corals. This is a, a coral collection because obviously the corals are in a really endangered state at the moment. So that's the common bream that I've... I've um, clicked on there and that's stored at the University of Bedfordshire now they're, they're, um, they specialise in saving marine species So is the frozen art collection complete? Most of the vertebrates their tissues and cells and DNA are beginning to be frozen down but the majority is not of the animal kingdom so we're in a hurry what's going to happen to their oceans? And they say there won't be a fish left in the oceans in 30 years' time. Now just imagine that. I'm frequently asked this question. Is this right? Uh, Are you not playing God? And I say, probably the coward's way out, is for future generations to decide what should be done with this material um, however, if we don't collect it, they will have no choices to do anything. So I squeeze out of it that way. The frozen arc is a simple idea. As Numi, age eight, says, it is a fantastic idea. It is a store of detailed information for future generations, so that we are not reliant, as we are with the dodo, on fairy tales and bags of bones to build a picture of the animals that used to live on our planet. I can imagine scientists of the future assuming that it's routine that you would have a frozen ark. It's amazing that somebody's put the effort in and managed to doggedly deliver on that because although it's so obvious to any scientist working today that that is what we're going to need and our descendants are going to need in the future to understand things with technologies we haven't even thought about yet. And that is what gives me hope. What's really sad is that it's necessary in the first place. And again, the idea of this frozen arc will be 
to try and protect or try and maintain the integrity of the diversity that once was there or that currently is here now to try and potentially mitigate the effects that man might have on the planet or has had on the planet. And so this is, I guess, our safeguard of making sure that we keep a little bit of DNA behind and we need to catalogue life. They're doing this with seed banks. Why not do it for animals? It is so obvious, but it was not happening. It took a retired couple with a vision to leave this extraordinary legacy for future generations. I asked Anne what she thought the future of the frozen ark should be. I've been um, suggesting what the future of the ark should be. It should be um, an accepted method of conservation. And not only for the animals themselves, but for humans' future and for scientific knowledge. We have to pass this thing on to the next generation safely. All you have to do is freeze it down <laughs> and then let future generations decide what to do with it. That, that, that is the, simple, the simplest thing I can say about the ark. It's all we want to do. Extraordinary vision for two people to have. <laughs> well, it's all due to the snails, really, watching them go extinct. Those little chaps over there. But it was your life's love? Of course, yes. We spent 13 years working on this. How would you like Brian to be remembered? His work? Revolutionary. <laughs> Their work is revolutionary. They were driven by a love and a simple belief that the diversity of our planet is beautiful and we have a duty to preserve it. It was never their intention for the frozen ark to be a replacement for saving the species. It is an insurance for future generations so that the animals and insects that we have lost will be known for what they were and not just imagined. The Frozen Zoo is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. Narration by Patricia Baker and final mix by Jerry Horn, Contact Studio.